Well, I pondered the title that was assigned to me, and uh, I wasn't quite sure how to set about to establish a contest between grace and faith and who would win. But I realized it wasn't an option. I think we have the answer before we start. Is it grace versus faith, or is it grace and faith? Well, I'm going to talk about grace, and I'm going to talk about faith. And I'm also going to talk about works, because I can't talk about grace without talking about works, and I can't talk about faith without talking about works. So earlier I was speaking with Brandon, and I, and I was saying it's two talks I've got to merge, but it's actually three that I have to merge here. These thoughts are all interconnected. Grace versus faith, or grace and faith. So we're going to begin with grace. The definition of grace as given in God's holy word is that which gives joy or pleasure, delight is the idea. This is the original idea behind the Greek word charis, which we have translated into our English word grace. And it is used in various ways in the New Testament. It is used in reference to speech, our speaking. The words of Jesus were spoken with grace. We read in Luke 4:22, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? The words of the Christian then, following their master, Jesus, are to impart grace to the hearers. And I hope that we can accomplish some of that together here this weekend. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. In Colossians 4 and 6, Paul says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So not terror, not wrath, and certainly not uselessness. Another way that the idea of grace is presented in scripture is the idea of goodwill, of loving kindness, of bestowing favor. And it is used in this way of uh, the relationship of the master toward his inferiors, that is his servants, and therefore that is transferred to the relationship of God towards men. And I think it should be established in our minds who the superior one in that arrangement is. Thayer points out with regard to this word cheris that it contains the idea of kindness which bestows upon one what he has not deserved. The New Testament writers often use cheris in this way preeminently of the kindness by which God bestows favors even upon the ill-deserving and grants to sinners the pardon for their offenses and bids them accept to accept eternal life, salvation through Christ. Ephesians 2.5 says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. And it is this, uh, this is probably our go-to concept and definition, and it is often used in our New Testament. Uh, the writers use it in this way, and this is where we go when uh, someone says, what is grace? And what is the standard answer? Unmerited favor. This is where this idea comes from. 
Another way that grace is applied is the idea of a spiritual state or condition in which one enjoys God's favor. When one accepts God's grace, they are in a state of grace. Consider Romans 5, 1 and 2, and 1 Peter 5 and 12. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 1 Peter 5 and 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Grace is an expression of gratitude for favor that has been bestowed upon us. And another way that we would say then would be to say thank you. This is another concept with regard to grace. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, where Paul says, I thank Jesus Christ. It doesn't get spoken this way as often anymore, but when we sit down to the table, we say grace. So we exchange these concepts and these words. Now, these are the main ways that the word grace is used in the New Testament, uh, the thoughts that are connected with this word. But there are some things that we Christians must always keep in mind with regard to grace, and so we want to consider briefly grace and the Christian. And our question is, is it grace versus faith, or is it grace and faith? We're wanting to know how are we saved? Well, we are saved by grace. The scriptures tell us we are saved by grace. Salvation is first, foremost, and always a matter of grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Now, I forgot to mention when I started, for the sake of, of time uh, and flow, I have much of my scripture reference printed into my notes so that I can just read them. I'll cite the reference and I'll go with that. So I'm not expecting you, where did he say? <laughs> just hang with me and listen. And if I want you to open and read with, I will try to remember to ask you to do that. But here's the thing. God doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us anything except, now you may open your Bible, to Romans. Let's go to Romans chapter 3. <clears throat> Romans chapter 3, we'll read verse 23 here in this chapter. Romans 3:23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short. And so what 
What are the wages? What do those sins deserve? Chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Salvation is a gift which God in his loving kindness offers to man. The second part of Romans 6.23 emphasizes the gift idea. Titus, Paul mentions this in his writing to Titus, and we read in chapter 3, 3 through 7, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Of course, mercy is mentioned in there as well, and it, is, it goes along with this whole idea. No matter what God may call upon us to do, no matter what it is that, that he requires of us in order to receive his grace, when we do those things, when we hear the message of the gospel, and we are convicted by it, we believe it, we make a decision to get on the right road, get off the wrong road, we repent, we confess Jesus as the Messiah and our need for him as our Savior, and we are baptized, and we continue to walk in faith. Can we ever in any way earn or merit the salvation that we receive? No. We are unworthy servants. <clears throat> Luke 17.10 So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. We must forever remember that only by God's grace is salvation possible. So God's grace <clears throat> requires holy living. Some people reason that since we are saved by grace, we are free to do then whatever we wish after that. But Paul wrote to us and told us that the grace of God teaches us teaches us to do some things like deny ungodliness and worldly lust, to live soberly and righteously and godly, and to look for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. Titus 2, 11 through 13, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he continues in this passage to explain why Jesus in grace gave himself for us, 
that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, and that he might purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. In verse 14 there in Titus 2. So the unmerited favor of God is not a license for sin. It's not an excuse for us to continue to go on sinning. So to properly understand grace and to live by it as a Christian, we must also be working. And of course, we're going to talk about faith, and we, we learn that faith without works is dead. And so we begin to answer the question that is put forth in our title. It is not God's grace alone that saves us, for God teaches us to direct our steps in holy living. It is not our faith alone that saves us, for our faith without works devoted to God is dead. It is not a matter of grace versus faith. It is God's grace, our faith, and the doing of them that saves us. Holy living requires God's grace. So we've established and noticed that uh, grace requires something of us. We must work. But the work that we do, you know, we have these illustrations. Thank you, Kevin, for leaving them up here. Uh, recently, uh, well, last week, we were considering some thoughts in the book of James, and we looked at the idea of, of justification, sanctification, and glorification. And we'll consider that briefly today also. But this road, this God's will road, that's like that bridge illustration that we were considering together here in our congregation. And the privilege that we have of holding God's hand and walking with him, working with him. So he gives us work to do, but then he works with us so that if we keep holding his hand, we'll never miss a step and we'll get to the other side. Holy living requires God's grace. To live soberly, righteously, and godly requires the grace of God. We cannot do it on our own. But with God's help, we can. Philippians 2, again, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. By his strength, we can do all the things that he desires of us. Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We must grow in grace. And this is especially true if we're going to live holy lives. Peter commends us to grow in grace in 2 Peter 3.18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Brethren, it is not enough to experience God's grace in forgiveness of our sins. God has a lot more to share with us now in this life and in that life to come. Ephesians 2 and 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now this explains why Paul in his salutations, like you might open your Bible and notice 1 Thessalonians 1 and 1 and how he mentions grace there. And then as he closes the writing to those brethren in 528, what does he do? He parts with that thought 
again, the salutation and the benediction for his letter to those brethren. Well, how do we grow in grace? Well, we grow in grace through heeding the word of God. When Paul spoke to the Ephesian elders, as we have the record in Acts 20 and 32, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. We grow in grace by drawing near to God in prayer. Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But we can receive this grace in vain. Paul pleaded with the Corinthians that they might not receive God's grace in vain, 2 Corinthians uh, 6 and 1. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Having received God's grace, is it possible for it to have been in vain? And it is. How is that possible? Well, by seeking to justify our sin. And in order to do that, we have to look elsewhere. We, can't, we have to let go of God's hand to do this. Galatians 5, 4. You are severed from Christ. You who would be, would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. So we, we like to talk about the, the Judaizing teachers and those Pharisees who, who tried to impose upon the Christians that unless you are circumcised, unless you do all these things of the, of the law of Moses, you're not justified before God. Well, it doesn't have to be that system that they're advocating. It can be anything that we are likewise advocating that takes our eyes off of Jesus, makes us let go of his hand, and we try to seek our justification for ourselves some other way in some other thing. So the immediate context, Paul has reference to the law of Moses, but if we seek to be justified by any system of salvation, by works alone, for instance, we fall from grace. By using God's grace as an excuse for licentiousness, for sin, we can, we can receive it in vain. Jude 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Try to hang on to that last thought about denial uh, for tomorrow because that's an important thought. What people say about Jesus tells you a lot about the road they're on. Some at this time were using grace as an excuse for shameless behavior. And yet we have seen that God's grace requires holy living. 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 14. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. 
we can make God's grace vain by our willful, impenitent, continued sinning, thereby despising the spirit of grace. Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For such a person, there no longer remains a sacrifice of sin. There no longer remains, that is, there's only been one. And if they treat that one with contempt, they have nothing. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is that if you go on this way in what you are doing, then what that is is rejecting the only sacrifice that is there for your sins. There is not going to be another. This is the only sacrifice you're going to get. So what, what is left? Only a fearful expectation of judgment. Why? Because through such willful and impenitent sin, one tramples the Son of God underfoot, counts the blood of the covenant, Jesus' blood, by which he was sanctified, saved a common thing. And he insults the spirit of grace. What a terrible thing it would be to have received God's grace in vain. To have received God's grace at one point, but then to make it all useless. But just as terrible not to receive it at all or having received it, not to grow in it. So let us be encouraged together. And let's consider the writer of Hebrews, who in 12.15 says, looking diligently, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. And in 12.28, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And in 13.9, for it is good that the heart be established by grace. And in 1325, grace be with you all. Amen. Have you received the wonderful grace of God in your life? Now let's talk about faith. And uh, the passage that we're going to is, is James now in uh, chapter 2. So you can have that at the ready, James chapter 2. And we'll consider 14 through 26. Faith is certainly an essential element in the Christian life, just as grace is, because it says in Hebrews 11:16, or excuse me, 11:6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. The Christian is saved by faith. Well, he's saved by grace, 
and he's saved by faith. Ephesians 2 and 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. The Christian walk is to live by faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Whatever we do apart from faith is described as sin. Romans 14, 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So it's important to realize this. It's important to realize that there are different kinds of faith. And so we want to examine that because not all types of faith save. We need to look at ourselves very carefully to see what kind we have because if we don't have the right type of faith, we're not going to expect eternal life in heaven with God. We may be expecting it, but we are wrong. So let's consider James chapter 2, 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers? And I'm reading, I had the Bible open, so you can do the same if you want with me now. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works? when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So beginning now with verses 14 through 17, we, no we notice the first kind of faith. And what is this faith called? Dead. It is a dead faith. You want to carry around a dead faith? It's a heavy burden to carry. This kind of faith substitutes words for deeds. And we have the example. It's, it's just a completely ridiculous example that, that James uses. Here is the person who is destitute, and he's right on your doorstep. And you smoothly speak all those nice words. And you say, be warmed and filled, slam the door. Preposterous, ridiculous. You think you have faith? People with this kind of faith know the correct vocabulary for prayer, for the words of sound doctrine. They can quote the right verses from the Bible, but their walk does not measure up to their talk. This is simply and only 
an intellectual faith. I'm afraid many people have this kind of faith. In one's mind, he or she knows the doctrine of salvation, but they've never really submitted themselves to God and trusted in Jesus for that salvation. They know the right words, but they do not back them up with their works. Can this kind of faith save? No, it cannot. Three times in this passage, in verse 17, verse 20, and verse 26, James emphasizes that faith without works is dead. Any declaration of faith that does not result in a changed life, with that being demonstrated with good works, it is a false declaration. It is a dead faith. Dead faith is a counterfeit faith, but it's very seductive. And it lulls the person into a false confidence of eternal life. Do we have this kind of faith? Well, we do if our walk does not measure up to our talk. We do if our works do not measure up to our words. We need to beware of a merely intellectual type of faith. One man put it this way, no man can come to Christ by faith and remain the same any more than he can come into contact with the 220-volt wire and remain the same. Consider what John says in 1 John 5 and 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. The next kind of faith that James discusses in verses 18 and 19 is demonic faith. Now hold on. You intellectually had figured out that you had a better kind of faith. This is a better kind of faith than intellectual faith because it adds to it. It adds emotion to the intellect. Perhaps a shock to any complacent reader of the scripture, James reminds us that even demons have a kind of faith. They believe in God. There's no atheists. No agnostics among them. None. They even believe and acknowledge the deity of Christ. Mark 3, 11 and 12. We were talking about this in our Thursday Bible study here just this week. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him, that's worship, and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. They also believe in the existence of a place of condemnation. Luke 8 and 31, they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. And they believe that Jesus will be the judge, Matthew 8, 28 and 29. And when he came to the other side of the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have, we to do, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? What kind of faith do demons have? We saw that a man with dead faith was touched only by his intellect. The demons are touched also in their emotions because it says they believe and tremble. This is a step above dead faith because it involves intellect and emotions. Can this kind of faith save? 
No, it cannot. A person can be enlightened in his mind and even stirred in his heart and still be lost forever. True faith, true saving faith, then involves something more, something that can be seen, something that can be recognized, something that is demonstrated in a changed life. James 2 and 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Being a Christian involves trusting Christ and living for Christ. You first receive the life, then you reveal the life. Do we have this kind of faith that the demons have? Well, we do if we just believe the right things and feel the right things. We do if our service to God does not go beyond intellectually adhering to the right doctrines. And this is a big one in the religious world today. Emotional experiences while attending services. This is so soothing, this one. Makes you feel good. I must be doing right. James has introduced us to two kinds of faith that can not save. Never can they do that. Dead faith involving only the intellect and demonic faith involving the intellect and the emotions, but stopping there. He closes this section by describing in, in verses 20 through 26 the only kind of faith that can save, and it is dynamic faith. What kind of faith is that? Well, we know from many passages, such as Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The word of God is the basis for this faith. Dynamic faith involves the whole man. Dead faith touches only his mind. Demonic faith involves the mind and the emotions, but dynamic faith involves the intellect, the emotions, and the will that we've been hearing about today. The mind understands the truth. The heart desires and rejoices in the truth. The will acts upon the truth. True saving faith then leads to action. It is not intellectual contemplation. It is not emotionalism. It is that which leads to obedience and doing good, good works. And to illustrate his point, he, he references two very well-known figures from the Old Testament. He talks about Abraham and Rahab. You could not find two more different people to talk about. Abraham was the father of the Jews. Rahab was a Gentile. Abraham was a godly man who had, Rahab was a harlot. Abraham was the friend of God, Rahab belong to the enemies of God. What did they have in common? Well, they both exercised saving faith in God. Abraham demonstrated his saving faith by his works, 20 through 24 of our passage. Rahab demonstrated her saving faith by her works, 25 and 26. So we learn from this passage that faith without works is a dead faith, verses 20 and 26. 
that faith only, and only once do we find in scripture that phrasing faith only, and we can't hang our hats on two words like that until we understand what we're talking about. But faith only cannot justify one. Verse 24 makes that plain. Perfect faith necessitates works, verse 22. So bringing this to a conclusion, it is important that each professing Christian examine his or her own heart and life to make sure that they possess true saving faith, which is that dynamic faith. And Satan is a great deceiver. And one of his devices is imitation. I believe it was Martin Luther, the reformer, who goes down as having said that uh, Satan was, was the greatest ape of God that ever was, meaning imitator of God. If Satan can convince a person that counterfeit faith is true faith, then he has that person in his power. So here are some questions for ourselves and to ask of others when we're talking with them about these topics of grace and faith. Was there a time when I honestly realized that I was a sinner and admitted this to myself and to God? Was there a time when my heart stirred me to flee from the wrath to come? Have I ever been seriously worked up over my sins? Do I truly understand the gospel that Christ died for my sins and then rose again? Do I understand and confess that I cannot save myself? Did I sincerely repent of my sins, making the decision to turn from them? Do I now hate sin and fear God? Or do I secretly love sin and want to enjoy it? Have I trusted Christ and him alone for my salvation by responding to the commands he has given? Have I confessed my faith in Christ and then been baptized for the remission of my sins as he and the apostles commanded? Has there been a change in my life? Do I maintain good works or are my good works occasional and weak? Do I seek to grow in the things of the Lord? Can others tell that I've been with Jesus? Do I have a desire to share Christ with others? Or am I ashamed of him? Do I enjoy the fellowship of God's people? Is worship a delight to me? Am I ready for the Lord's return? Or will I be ashamed when he comes for me? Certainly every Christian has some degree, some type of faith. Those who have had time, more time to grow should have a stronger faith. But I know that these things tend to waver at times. We have valleys and mountains that we experience, but this is a spiritual inventory that we can apply to ourselves and make that plain 
that we are applying it to ourselves as well as that person that we are talking to and with when we are talking about this subject. I don't know that it's productive for us to just say, well, faith only, <laughs> you know. We know what that's about. No, we're on the, we're, let's get in the same boat that takes us there, like was expressed the words of the late Bill, told him I was concerned for his soul. Get in the boat. I'm concerned for your soul. <clears throat> May our prayer be similar to the psalmist that we read in Psalm 139, 23 through 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So yes, it is grace and it is faith as defined and demonstrated by works. Putting it all together like we were talking about recently here, justification, sanctification, glorification. Justification, that is God's grace. Sanctification, that is our faith. Glorification, that is the end goal of our works and the result of our doing those works of God's grace and our faith side by side and hand in hand with Christ Jesus, our Lord. Appreciate the opportunity to consider these things with you, and I hope we will strongly consider them.